Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so thrilled to have Rabbi Dr. Joshua Garraway for his class, Inside the Mind of God, Plato, Christians, and Jews. Rabbi Joshua Garraway is the Saul and Arlene Bronstein Professor of Judeo-Christian Studies at the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. Raised in Rochester, New York, Rabbi Garraway earned a BA in Religion from Duke University in 1998, Rabbinical Ordination from the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in 2003, and a PhD in New Testament Studies from the Religious Studies Department of Yale University in 2008. Academic books and articles focus on the origins of Christianity and specifically the life and writings of Paul. His teaching and popular writing deal with Jewish texts and history more broadly. Professor Garraway lectures widely in synagogues, churches, and other uh, public venues. He is also engaged in several interfaith ventures, including the Los Angeles area InterSEM program, and the Jewish LDS Academic Dialogue. Rabbi Garraway currently lives in Pasadena, California with his wife, Professor Christine Henriksen Garraway, and their three teenage slash teenage, tweenage slash teenage, if I said that right, boys. For fun, he enjoys chess, tennis, opera, period pieces, and taking his kids to Dodgers games. So without further ado, we will pass it over to you, Rabbi Garraway. Wonderful, thank you for that very, a kind introduction that I wrote. And uh, also uh, just thank you to Shmuley and everybody at the Valley Bait Midrash. Uh, I have followed the Valley Bait Midrash on, uh, on social media for, for many years now and just always admired the kinds of folks that come in to speak. And I was actually blown away a few months ago when I got an email out of the blue, totally unexpected saying, would you care to give us a lesson? And I said, absolutely. I didn't blink at saying yes, um, because this is a wonderful program and something I admire very much. So it is a great privilege and honor to be here. Let me share my screen. Um, don't look yet, otherwise you'll, you'll see what's coming. You may have already seen it. All right, so this is what we're going to be talking about today. And my understanding is that, I'm gonna put my camera there so I'm looking a little bit more at it. Uh, is that I am to speak for about 40 or 45 minutes, and that will leave 10 or 15 minutes at the end for questions. Uh, that shouldn't be a problem. And so you see our title here, Inside the Mind of God, Plato, Christians, and Jews, and in small parentheses, Lionel Richie. Um, if you are close to my age, you may remember Lionel Richie from the 1980s and the video, Hello. There will be a still frame from the video, Hello, from I believe 1985 coming down the road. And many people have said that's their favorite part of this talk. We'll see. What I can promise you is that what you'll take away from today, I hope, is a bit more knowledge about an ancient philosopher and his philosophy, and that's Plato. A bit more about a largely unknown Jew who was a significant Jewish philosopher in the first century, whose name was Philo. You'll learn a tiny bit more about early Christian theology, especially in the Gospel of John. And then maybe most importantly, what you will learn is a new way 
to read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Indeed, what I often offer to people is that even if you hate everything else you hear, I promise you that when you go to hear Parashat Breshit or you go to Simchat Torah in September or October, whenever it is, and you hear Breshit bara Elohim, you will think about it differently than you ever have as a result of what you're going to learn today. So that is my promise to you. And without further ado, let's get started so we can finish in time for questions. So I often start this lecture by asking for some audience responses, which I won't do because this venue is not, um, not fit for that. But I would like to ask you just momentarily to think in your minds of what you would consider to be your favorite fictional dog. So that could be a dog from a TV show, a dog from a movie, a dog from a book that you've read, but some kind of fictional dog. Famous fictional dog, maybe your favorite fictional dog. Mm -hmm. Now, rather than surveying all of you and finding out what you think is the greatest fictional dog, let me tell you the responses that I think I've heard the most of their many years of teaching this material, uh, both here at the rabbinical school and also across the street uh, to the undergrads at USC. The ones I've gotten most are the following. Clifford the Big Red Dog. Lassie. I've never heard an undergrad say Lassie, but older folks often say Lassie. I get a lot of Scooby-Doo. I get a lot of Air Bud from people a little younger than me. That was a movie in the 90s about a golden retriever that could jump very high. Uh, I get a lot of Toto, especially from uh, older learners. I get Brian from The Family Guy from a lot of younger learners. I get Snoopy a lot. I also get many, many others, but this was just a nice selection that I've gotten recently, so I put them onto this slide. Now, as you can tell from the title of this slide, the purpose of me asking you about dogs and showing you this selection of dogs is not just to get a better understanding of popular early 21st century American fictional dogs. The purpose is to introduce a very important philosophical concept, and that is what's called the problem of universals. So what is the problem of universals? Well, it's actually revealed by what you see on this slide. All of us, I assume, recognize each of these seven photographs as a dog. And yet when you step back and look at them, it's actually quite miraculous that despite these seven dogs being so profoundly different, we still recognize them all as dogs. Now you could say, well, Lassie and Toto, they're actually photographs of real dogs. Of course I recognize them as dogs, but look at those photographs. Right? Lassie, first of all, is in black and white, and Lassie has a real long muzzle, whereas Toto is short and wiry and has sort of a short little face, a squashed face. And yet you see them both as dogs. And then you also see these animated creatures, some of whom are obviously not like dogs, and yet you see them as dogs. Look at Brian, for example. Brian and Snoopy are standing upright. Dogs don't stand upright. Dogs don't have eyelids and yet you see them as dogs. Then in the upper left, there's a dog who is red. 
There is no dog in the world that is red, and yet you see it as a dog. So the problem of universals is the question, how is it that when I'm faced with all kinds of dis disparate images of something, and again, it could be a dog, later on we're gonna see a cat or a horse, or it could be a human being or a geranium, whatever it is, how can there be so many particular varieties of something, and yet my mind looks at all of them and identifies in them a universal? This is a major philosophical problem which has existed for 2,500 years. We are not gonna talk about contemporary approaches to the problem of universals, which are by far the most popular. That tends to be something called nominalism. It's most often associated with a philosopher named Wittgenstein. We're also not gonna talk about Aristotle and his approach to the problem of universals because that's ultimately not what's going to affect ancient Jews and Christians as much as what we are gonna discuss, which is the solution to the problem of universals offered by the great philosopher in ancient Greece, Plato. So what did Plato say about how to resolve the problem of universals? Plato said, the reason why there are universals, the reason why I can recognize a dog even though all the dogs in the world look different from one another, is because alongside this physical world that we live in, there is another world in the universe. And in that other world exists the absolute perfect form of everything. Our world is physical. And as you're going to find out, our world is imperfect. But alongside this world, in tandem, there is another world which is not physical. It's purely immaterial. It's purely made of ideas. And in that world is the idea of the perfect dog. A real thing. The real perfect dog. And in that platonic world or that world of forms exists, again, the real version of everything. And not just things, not just the perfect dog, the perfect horse, the perfect cat, the perfect man, the perfect geranium, but also ideas, perfect courage, perfect beauty, the perfect good. And when you walk around in this world and you see different versions of things, different kinds of dogs, different kinds of men, different kinds of courage, different kinds of examples of the good. You recognize them as those things because the true version of those things actually does exist in the platonic world of forms. And your brain comes pre-programmed with an understanding of those perfect forms. That was Plato's understanding of how to solve the problem of universals. Now, if you saw, if you go to Google and you type in Plato's solution to the problem of universals, you will see a number of images, which I'm going to show you now, which will make this even more clear. So here is another rendering of Plato's solution. Why is it that when I look around at the world of cats, I see black cats, white cats, polka dotty cats, tabby cats, cats with no hair, and yet all of them are cats? because in the world of forms is an ideal perfect cat. 
In the world of forms is an ideal perfect dog. In the world of forms is the ideal perfect horse. And when I go to Santa Anita racetrack and I see 12 horses in the starting gate, some gray, some brown, some with manes, some without manes, I recognize them all as horses because there is a real, perfect, ideal horse that exists in the world of form. That's Plato. Let me say one more thing about Plato, and then you're going to see why this is relevant for ancient Jewish and Christian literature. So Plato famously put forth a metaphor in order to explain how his understanding of reality and knowledge works. It's a famous metaphor that's found in Plato's symposium, but it's kind of hard to understand when it's just in words. So I find a pictorial representation of that metaphor most helpful. And that metaphor is what you see here, and it's called the metaphor of the cave. Again, I'm assuming this goes without saying, but I've had undergrads for whom it didn't go without saying. So let me just make sure I say, Plato didn't draw this diagram. Plato wrote in words about the metaphor of the cave, and someone on Google has put this photo up there as a representation of that metaphor. And the metaphor says, ah, imagine there are some prisoners that are stuck in a cave, and they've been there their whole life. They have the ball and chain, which forces them to sit and look at the wall that is across from them. Behind them are the people I call the jerks. Plato doesn't call them the jerks, but the jerks just walk back and forth and hold up cardboard cutouts of various objects. In this case, it looks like it's a cat, a table, and a chair. And behind them is a fire or a source of light. So the light passes across the objects, which casts a shadow on the wall. And the prisoners, they just sit there their entire life and watch the shadows. Now the jerks also make noises. So the jerks are like, meow, meow, trot, 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 meow. So the people who are sitting here, the prisoners, they think there is an entire reality, which is in fact, nothing more than shadows. And so Plato goes on to say, well, what would happen if the prisoners eventually turned around? Well, the first thing that would happen is they would be blinded by the light. That's a great song from the eighties. Blinded by the light, and then they would see, oh my goodness, what I thought was reality is really just cardboard cutouts. And yet what would happen if the jerks were to able, able to get out of the cave? They would walk around the cave. Well, the first thing that would happen is they'd see the sun and they'd say, ah, oh, I'm blinded by the light. But then they'd go far enough and they'd see an actual cat and an actual uh, um, table and an actual chair. And they'd say, oh my goodness, what I thought was real Cardboard cutouts are in fact not real. They're just versions of the real fluffy and wooden things in the world. Now, of course, you know what the next step is. If a philosopher or a person is ever to gain a true understanding of the world of forms, then you'd say, oh my gosh, I'm blinded, but now I understand what real catness is and real tableness and real chairness. And if you're familiar with Plato's dialogues, one of the things Socrates is trying to do there is figure out what really is the good or the beautiful or courage. They're usually not interested in mundane things like what is true catness. But this cave metaphor perfectly embodies 
a view of reality and of knowledge that is based in Plato's understanding of a world in which there are two worlds side by side, the physical world full of difference and matter that we live in, and the perfect immaterial ideal world in which the ideal perfect form of everything exists. That's Plato. Normally, I might ask for questions now to make sure we all understand Plato, but I'm gonna move on instead. If there are questions about Plato, please raise them later. I may or may not be able to answer them, but I hope I've made this clear enough that you can understand the next step of what I wanna do. Now let's get to the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem is going to emerge once we understand how Plato described the way in which the world as we know it came to be. Because Plato, in a work called the Timaeus, one of his dialogue, gives a description of how it came to be that there is an ideal platonic world and a differentiated physical world that we live in. And in the Timaeus, Plato says the following happened. He says there was a figure whom he calls the demiurgos in Greek, which means something like craftsman or artisan. And he doesn't say much about what that artisan or craftsman is, but the artisan presumably existed outside of the world of forms. And the artisan said, I'm looking at the one hand at a piece of unmolded clay, of dirt, of earth. And on the other hand, I'm looking at the world of forms. Look, I see beautiful dog, perfect cat, perfect courage, perfect good. What I wanna do is put that perfect world of forms into that lump of clay. That's gonna be my art project. Now, I often compare this to my experience in high school ceramics, when we had to take a lump of clay and make it into a bust of a person for our final exam. I ended up trying to do it of a young lady in the class that I liked. I can assure you the bust was so bad that any kind of um, future I had hoped for with that young lady was destroyed by my poor artistic skills. Why? Because even though I had an image in my mind of what it ought to look like, when I tried to put that image into matter, it came out imperfect. There was actually a video in the 80s in which someone I think was familiar maybe with the Timaeus and that would be Lionel Richie, who in the video, hello, you may know Lionel Richie is a teacher in community college and he has a crush on one of his colleagues or students, I'm not sure. And she is a ceramicist and she is making a bust of Lionel Richie. So she looks at Lionel Richie and creates what you may remember as this bust. Now, this bust is actually much better than the one I created in high school, but nonetheless, is that Lionel Richie? Of course not. And if five other ceramicists were making a Lionel Richie, would they all look like that? No, they'd all look different. Because the idea is that when you try to take the ideal and put it into material form, you get variation, difference, imperfection, mutation, and so on and so forth. You also get corruptibility, right? If it gets too hot or someone stands on the Lionel Richie statue, it's gonna get squashed. The perfect Lionel Richie in the world of forms is incorruptible. 
So that's a contemporary video analogy for understanding the idea of the Timaeus. Again, the claim of the Timaeus is that there is a demiurge, some kind of artisan deity that looks to the world of forms and puts it into matter. But of course, when putting it into matter, you get difference and corruptibility, which is why all men, all women, all dogs on earth look differently, which is why the world we live in is filled with evil and corruption, because that's the material world that we are in. Here we get to the big question. If we assume that many Jews in the first century read Plato and cared about Plato, and thought Plato was right. How could they reconcile what Plato was saying with what Genesis is saying? Now, this is not some unusual task. If you know medieval philosophy, you know that someone like Maimonides was reading Aristotle and then reading Genesis and trying to put them together. In our own world, by the way, many of us read Darwin and think it's true and then read Genesis and try to come up with a way of figuring out how both of them can be true so that we can be worldly, but also Jewish. Well, lots of Jews wanted to be worldly in the first century and know Plato, but also be Jewish. And yet they had a foundational problem. What is that foundational problem? Well, on a Jewish reckoning of creation, it is Adon Olam Asher Malach B'Terem Kol Yitzir Nivra, or Now, granted, that was written in the 10th century, I think. But the idea there is, there is God who exists before everything. One God, not two, who exists before everything. But on Plato's reckoning, that's not true. There's two things that exist before everything. There's the demiurge, which a Jew could e easily identify as God. There's the demiurge but then there's also the world of forms. And both of them are always there and exist forever until the Demiurge says, I'm gonna try to make you in this clay. So what do you do if you're a first, second century Jew? You say, I love Plato, but I got a problem because Plato thinks there were two things at the beginning. Plato thinks that there's something that's as eternal and as old as God, namely the world of forms. And yet I can't deny that Plato's true. So what did these Jewish thinkers do? Well, they said, how can the world of forms exist outside of and yet co-eternally with God? The answer was to say, ah, what if we take that platonic world of forms and we push it up right next to God and we call it God's little buddy or God's mind? or God's language, or God's wisdom. In other words, we make it a part of God that God uses to create the world, but not a separate being that exists co-eternally with God. And what I wanna show you in the last 20 or 25 minutes is three different ways that ancient Jews, one of them is an ancient Christian who I think qualifies as an ancient Jew, but nonetheless, the way three ancient Jews do this, taking the world of forms and snuggling it up nice and close to God so that God has a little creation buddy. And that little creation buddy is gonna go by different names and different descriptions, 
but it's all an attempt to reconcile Plato with Genesis. So let's dig in. The first person I want to introduce you to is a guy named Philo of Alexandria. You may have had some lessons about him before. Philo was a wealthy aristocrat in Alexandria, so a Hellenized Jewish environment where he spoke Greek, he learned Greek, and he was well acquainted with Platonic philosophy and loved Platonic philosophy. And much of his writing is an effort to show that what he understands Judaism to be is completely concordant, completely in agreement with what Platonic philosophy is. That is, in some ways, his overall uh, 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 project is to bring Judaism and Platonism together. And he has a work that is about creation. It's not called Timaeus because it's not a conversation with a guy named Timaeus. It's called what you would imagine, De Apificio Mundi, in Latin, on the making of the world. And in his description of the making of the world, you will see Plato all over it. So what does that look like? Well, in De Apificio Mundi, Philo writes, God, and this is a little bit complicated, so if you don't follow what I'm reading, I promise you it's harder in Greek. But even in English, it's hard to follow. If you don't follow it, I'm going to summarize what happens um, at the end of each paragraph. Sorry. It says, God, as apprehending beforehand that there could not exist a good imitation without a good model, when he had determined to create this visible world, previously formed that one which is perceptible only by the intellect, in order that so using an incorporeal model formed as far as possible on the image of God, he might then make this corporeal world a younger likeness of the elder creation. In other words, what did God do when God wanted to create the world? The first thing God did was create a world in God's mind. Ah, here is the perfect world in my mind. He basically thought before he did. He had an idea before he brought it to fruition. Philo says, that's not unusual. I can give you lots of analogies of people who form ideas in their mind before they build them with their hands. What's the most obvious example? Well, he's gonna use the example of architect or city planner. So he says, look, the way the world was created, we shall know if we take for our guide a certain image of things which exist among us. It happens at time that some man coming up who from his education is skillful in architecture, and he seeing the advantageous character and beauty of the situation, first of all sketches out in his own mind nearly all the parts of the city which is about to be completed. The temples, the gymnasia, the prutania, the markets, the harbor, the docks, the streets, the arrangement of the houses, the situations of the dwelling houses and of the public and other buildings. In other words, no city planner sits down and just starts building things. No, you come up with a perfect idea in your mind and then you start building. But there's actually one more step because a good city planner or architect first imagines it in the mind, then puts it on paper called blueprints or whatever city planners use, 
and then you start to build it. So Philo says, having received in his own mind, as on a waxen tablet, like a blueprint, the form of each building, he carries in his heart the image of a city perceptible as yet only by the intellect, the images of which he stirs up in memory, which is innate in him, and still further engraving them in his mind like a good workman, keeping his eyes fixed on his model, he begins to raise the city of stones and wood, making the corporeal substances to resemble each of the incorporeal ideas. Now, what we would call the nimshal, if this were rabbinic literature, what does this have to do with God? God does the same thing. God, having determined to found a mighty state, first of all, conceived of the universe in God's mind, according to which God made a world perceptible only by the intellect. The world was first just a mental world for God. And then, Genesis 1-1, Breshit bara Elohim, then God decided to make that mental world into a real world by creating it in physical space. Now, there is a name that Philo gives to this ideal world that is in God's mind. He doesn't call it the platonic world of forms. He calls it either halogos in Greek, the word, which is where we actually get the word logic and other such things, or sometimes Philo will call it God's wisdom, God's Sophia. By the way, on one occasion, this will blow your minds, Philo calls it God's only son. Wisdom, God's wisdom, God's only son, God used as a way to create the world. Now, what I want to suggest in the next two texts is that Philo was not alone. Yes, we know that Philo was reading Plato. We know that Philo wanted a Platonized Judaism. But I'm going to show you two other authors who don't say that explicitly, and yet what they write indicates they want to look Platonic too. So before we get to those, I just want to make one small point, which is that oftentimes Plato is identified as a middle Platonic thinker. That's just a way of letting you know that there are differences between uh, Philo and Plato, such that Philo is considered a later Platonist. But later on, there will be another philosopher named Plotinus who will take Plato in all kinds of new directions, and they will be called the Neoplatonists. So if there's Neoplatonists and regular Platonists, a lot of people in the field decided the best way to describe people like Philo is middle Platonists. And the hallmark of Middle Platonism is the attempt to link a creator God with some kind of additional entity that helps the creator God create the world. For Philo, it's called either God's reason, God's wisdom, God's logos, and so on and so forth. Now, to a text you are probably more familiar with. Genesis Rabbah. The rabbi's midrash on Genesis, an early Amoraic midrash, I think it's very hard to date, but let's say third, fourth, fifth century. And here the rabbis are quite obviously taking on Genesis 1-1. 
And what you're going to see is that I think they tap into a Jewish tradition, which for a long time has adopted that platonic way of thinking about creation and identified God's helper in creation as wisdom. Not Sophia in Greek, but Chochmah in Hebrew. And what I want to do now is show you how that works. So I'll give you a translation in a moment. But this is actually the very first passage in the Midrash Genesis Rabbah. And it gives you, hey, just like Philo gave us an analogy, the Midrash gives us an analogy, which in Midrashic terms is called a mashal, a parable or an analogy to God as creator. And it says, what does that mean? It says, let's understand God as though God were a human king who builds a palace. He does not build it from his own mind, but rather a king hires an architect. And yet the architect doesn't build it from his own mind. Rather, the architect uses, this translation says inks and tablets. That's not quite right. Pinox is a Greek word that means tablet, but I'm pretty sure that diphtarot is um, not inks, but uh, leather hides. And I'm pretty sure that's related to the word diphtheria which if, I don't think people have anymore because I think it was some Jewish guy in Germany that came up with the vaccine a hundred years ago. Um, I think when people had diphtheria, you had like leather looking things in your throat or something. I'm not quite sure. But so diphtarotufinoxote are the paper you would write on, a plat, a, either a, um, a tablet or a leather pad. Um, but that's what an architect does. Because the architect first has to say, all right, here's where the gates are going to be and the doors and so on and so forth. Now, the last four or five lines of this Midrash are where we hit pay dirt. But before we get to that, I need to set you up for understanding it by introducing you to another passage in the Tanakh with which you might not be familiar. Because if you know how Midrash works, the way I teach my student is the rabbis come to a verse. They say, oh, there's something in the verse that ain't quite right. How are we going to solve it? Well, we're not going to go to the library. We're not going to go to a Bible dictionary. We're not going to go to an archaeological site. The way we solve problems in the Tanakh is by finding other verses in the Tanakh that will shed light on it. So they're in Genesis 1-1, and they say we need another verse, and they walk all the way down to the end of the Tanakh to Proverbs chapter 8. Now, you may know Proverbs. In chapters well, six, seven, but especially eight and nine, Proverbs imagines two different ladies, not real ladies, but ladies who are metaphors for something. There's Lady Folly and there's Lady Wisdom. Lady Folly, you don't want to know. If you get involved with Lady Folly, she will ruin your life. Lady Wisdom is what you want. Wisdom is what you ought to pursue and wisdom is what you will get if you read the book of Proverbs. And in chapter eight, the book of Proverbs goes at great length to describe what wisdom, or in Hebrew, chokhmah, or later in Greek, sophia, what that is. 
And in 822, the book of Proverbs writes, the Lord brought me forth as the first of God's works. The exact Hebrew is Adonai Kanani Reshit Darko. God made me Reshit, first of his works. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. So here, wisdom saying, you know what? I'm actually the very first thing created. I know maybe you've read Genesis 1-1 and you think the first thing created was light or something else. No, 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 no. Before Genesis 1-1 even started, I was made. Chokhmah, wisdom. And importantly, she calls herself Reshit, the first of God's ways. Now, why is that important? Because one of the techniques of Midrash is called Gezerah Shaba. You have a problematic verse, you go to another verse and you say, oh my goodness, the same word is there. I'm gonna take that word there and use its meaning way back here. And that's what the rabbis of Genesis Rabbah do. And they say, God worked just like an architect. God looked into not God's blueprints, God looked into the Torah and created the world. That's why Genesis 1.1 says, using reshit, b-reshit, what is reshit? Well, reshit is chokhmah, wisdom, which the rabbis understand to be the Torah. And so they say, God looked into the Torah and created the heavens and the earth. Because reshit is just another word for Torah. As you read in Proverbs 8.22, the Lord created me, the Torah, wisdom, reshit, the very first thing in his work. So this is a wonderfully playful midrash, which allows the rabbis to say that what's being described in Genesis 1.1 with the word b-reshit is secretly telling us that in fact, God had a friend, a little buddy at creation. It's not in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's using the Torah, God created the heavens and the earth. So where for Philo, God's little buddy, God's creative helper was God's mind or God's wisdom or God's logos. For the rabbis here, it's the same idea, but God's little buddy, God's little helper is the Torah, which existed in God's mind as the very first thing created. God created the Torah in God's mind and then used the Torah as the blueprint to create the world. Interestingly, if you ever come to visit me, so here I'm just highlighting the Gezerah Shaba, the use of the word Reshit in Proverbs to shed light on what's going on in Genesis. If you come visit me at the Hebrew Union College here in Los Angeles, we have a prayer space. And in that prayer space, we have this beautiful ark, which houses our Sifre Torah. And if you look at it closely, you can see that the artist put at the bottom all kinds of just different jumbled Hebrew letters. But if you read Hebrew, you'll see that coming out of those Hebrew letters is Adonai Kanani Reshit Darko. So this is actually wisdom on the ark 
speaking, saying, hey, God created me first. And as the rabbis understand chokhmah or wisdom to be the Torah, this is essentially the Torah saying, hi, God created me first. And I'm inside the ark and Bereshit bara Elohim. It was using me that God created the world. So I actually know who gave the idea to the designer to create the ark this way. And you can only imagine it was a rabbi who was extremely well-versed in Genesis Rabbah 1.1. One last passage I want to show you, then I'll sum up and take some questions. So the last passage is in a language I'm assuming none of you know, but I'd always love to be delightfully surprised. And this is the language of Greek. And what you're looking at is the very beginning of the fourth gospel of the New Testament, the gospel of John. And the gospel of John starts, en arche, uh, yeah, sorry, en arche en hologos. In the beginning was the word, kai hologos and proston theon, and the word uh, was with God, and so on and so forth. Now, there's actually a funny story about this verse, which I, sometimes I like to tell, and I think I have a couple extra minutes I can tell it. I, just, I don't know if everyone knows who Oscar Wilde is. He's kind of one of my heroes. Flamboyant, gay, uh, playwright, novelist, at kind of turn of the 20th century England. He was Irish. And um, just like brilliant beyond compare. And the kind of brilliant guy that liked to mess with other people. So the story is that he uh, was at Oxford. And when you were a student at Oxford, you had to pass uh, exams in, uh, in theology, I believe, at least in the program he was in. And so part of that exam was that you had to go read for a professor Greek from the New Testament and show that you could do that. So he went to show up for his Greek exam. And I have heard that it was either this passage he was given or a passage from the Gospel of Mark. I don't know. And apparently he started reading and Arche and Hologos, blah, blah, blah. And he translated it. Um, and, and apparently the proctor said, oh, okay, Oscar, it's, it's clear that you, you know, you understand Greek. Uh, you can stop now. And what did Oscar Wilde say? Oh, no, 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 no. Please do let me continue. I'd love to see how this ends. The idea that, of course, he was getting his theology degree and had no idea how the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark ends. I find that an amusing story. I once told that story in England and tried to do it with British and Irish accents, and I've not been invited to that venue again. So... I just did it in straight up American California accent here. In any case, what does an arche and halagos mean? In the beginning was the logos. Oh my goodness. Doesn't this sound exactly like what Philo was saying before? And the logos was with God. In other words, God had like a little buddy, some kind of helper in creation. Now then we have the line in the Logos was God, which of course will become, will come to complicate Christian theology for the next four centuries and eventually give us what we know of as the Catholic concept of the Trinity. But the statement here sounds entirely Philonic, like Philo, and Platonic, the idea that there is a little buddy that is there with God at creation. Here it's identified first as God's wisdom or God's word the Logos. But if you know your Gospel of John, you know that just a few verses later, we, we are told that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So I've always taught it like this, just as for Jews, the Torah 
was God's mind and God's creative faculty. And it became flesh and dwelt among us at Mount Sinai, something we will celebrate at Shavuot in a few weeks. So for Christians, God's mind, God's creative faculty was the Christ, God's son, which became flesh and dwelled among us during Jesus's ministry, according to Christians. And then, of course, Jesus's ministry ended and Jesus returned to the place as God's little buddy, creative faculty, helper, mind, logos, however you want to understand it. So on the one hand, there are differences between what Philo's saying, the rabbis are saying, and the gospel of John is saying. But I hope I've been able to impress upon you that there's also something eerily similar about what they're all doing. They're all trying to adopt a platonic conception of creation with the Jewish conception of creation as you see it in Genesis chapter one. And so to conclude, if you're to ask the question, what exactly is in God's mind, or at least at the moment of creation, what was God thinking of? Well, according to Philo, God was thinking of Plato's world of forms, which he calls logos or word or reason. According to the rabbis, God was thinking about chokhmah, wisdom, or the Torah. And according to the Gospel of John, and what would later become a fairly standard Christian theology, God's mind, what God had in God's mind as a creative faculty, was the Logos, but the Logos as Christ. Three very similar readings of Plato, but with very different figures involved. Thank you so much, Rabbi Garraway. Uh, we'd love to open it up to questions. Um, so if anyone would like to ask a question, feel free to, free to raise your hand and then uh, unmute. Hi, Aglaya. Okay, so I'm a little hyper right now. I'm sorry. Okay, now, first of all, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember that Lionel Richie video. I barely remember the song though, but, um, and I'm really too squeamish for that person to have been a student. That grosses me out, though. But let's say, for instance, she's his colleague. Okay, so we're going to say just because I'm squeamish, she's his colleague. Uh, she, by the way, in the video, she's definitely his student, and it's um, totally inappropriate and squeamish, and yes. Okay, well, for right now, we can't handle that. I can't handle that. But here's the thing that is that, okay, well, if we think about it in terms of the way that I'm thinking, then yeah, she can be the student, okay? The reason why is because of the fact that what we're talking about right now, though, for me, it's like conjuring this image of God's Lionel Richie standing behind us, and we're the student trying to actually create him as well. And so is it also like something that's, you know, like just basically all of these different interpretations of, okay, so Philo's you know, the rabbis and the Christians and everything though, all of those also just like humans sculpting that bust of God back. Right, so I mean, I, I let's not push the metaphor too far. So what I'm trying to do with the ceramics analogy mm -hmm. is explain the problem that one encounters when mm -hmm. one tries to take something that is purely an idea mm -hmm. and put it into matter. When you do that, it gets broken, it gets imperfect, you get difference and you get corruptibility. And so I don't think Philo or the rabbis or Christians would disagree with that. That for the rabbis, God takes the Torah, the ideal world and puts it into the earth. And yet the rabbis would acknowledge the earth is imperfect. This is not a perfect replica of the Torah. 
it's an imperfect material replica of the Torah. And Christians do not think this is a perfect world. They would say, yeah, God tried to create a world in matter using the perfect immaterial logos, which was Christ, but created a world full of pain and death and decay and difference and corruption and so on and so forth. Does that help? I was just thinking in terms of like, you know, are also like the reaching out towards God, though, is that something that is, um, you know, also something we can consider? Yeah. To reach towards God also. Absolutely. Um, And I mean, this goes beyond what I wanted to talk about. But for those of you who have studied um, Kabbalah or ancient Gnosticism, which are very similar systems, uh, one of the things Kabbalah tries to do is to bridge that gap, saying, ah, there is an immaterial perfect Ein Sof that's inaccessible, and there's this yucky, grimy world we live in. But what Kabbalah tries to achieve is, what's the spectrum in between, and how can we get involved in that? Never getting to the very top, but how can we allow ourselves to experience God by getting somewhere into that between zone? Um, That's what the Gnostics in the ancient Christian world were trying to do, and it's very much Um, what Kabbalah tries to do, although I usually vow never to speak about Kabbalah in public because uh, I will insult both myself and them. Thank you so much. Yes. I have no uh, uh, forebears from Lithuania, but I like to think that I do. Lithuanians meaning the opposite of of Kabbalists, or at least of Chassids. Hi, Steve. Hi. Uh, Thank you, uh... Rabbi, this was really entertaining, and and I loved it. Uh, Does God's wisdom, which I assume is perfect, become imperfect once it becomes part of humanity? I think the answer that any of these figures would give is that, no, God's wisdom doesn't become imperfect. One would never say the Torah becomes imperfect, right? I don't know if we still sing that, but you know, it's not like the Torah can be affected. The problem is that when the Torah is in the world or Christ is in the world or the Logos is in the world and we material beings try to understand it and live it out, we're never going to get to hundred percent perfection, There's always going to be a measure of imperfection because we are corruptible. We have physical desires and so on and so forth. So that you know, the rabbis would say, you know, even a person who is as obedient to the commandments of the Torah as possible is going to fall short now and then. I mean, that's one of the messages of Yom Kippur. Um, And of course, that's certainly a message in Christianity. So I don't think they would say that God's wisdom or the Torah or Christ becomes imperfect by being here, but our ability to apprehend those things and live them out is even at its best, imperfect. You might think, another way to think about it, I love music analogies. You know, you might say that Mozart's uh, Requiem is perfect piece of music, that on the paper, it's perfect music. But as soon as you try to play it, you know, on the piano or what, not the piano, but all of the instruments of the orchestra, you introduce imperfection. It will never be performed perfectly, even if theoretically it is perfect. I don't know if that analogy helped. Hey, does anyone mind if I throw Professor Tolkien in here? You know, <laughs> okay, yeah. All right, I, I have to thinking... warn you, I have not uh, read or seen that series. Okay, well, uh, don't worry about it. It's not even from the series anyway, though. So okay. <laughs> it's something that I happened to be like reading. Um, it was talking about like humans basically being 
you know, being made in the image of a creator also have this creative impulse too. So I don't know if um, we want to go down that rabbit hole about the human creative impulse and all of this too. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that that's a part of what these texts are talking about is the human creative impulse. Although I assume, or at least I hope that you have had someone learned in the scholarship of of, uh, the Rav Soloveitchik who wrote some of the most beautiful work about Genesis um, and and talked a lot about the the creative impulse of humanity. I'm guessing that's something that Shmuley probably can, can teach about very beautifully, but whenever I think about the human creative impulse, the first thing I tell people to do is go read The Lonely Man of Faith um, and, and other works about Genesis by Soloveitchik. Uh, hi, Suzanne. Hi. Hi, Josh. A uh, great presentation. Um, I have a question because when you were saying that there was something that was there before God started to create the world, I was thinking about the tohu vavohu. Is there any way in which that's related to any kind of other thinking that there's already this formless, gushy stuff that God then turns into the world? Yeah, I mean, the issue of creation ex nihilo, or the idea that God created the world from scratch, as opposed to that God created the world from tohu vavohu or chaos that was primordial and already around, was becoming an issue actually at this very time. It was precisely in the first and second and third centuries when the rabbis of Genesis Rabbah were trying to turn what is a story about creation out of Tohu Vavohu into a creation ex nihilo. And one of the most famous midrashim, of course, is the idea that God, the first thing God creates is Tohu Vavohu, and then uses Tohu Vavohu to create all of the world. And I don't know if they'd say this explicitly anywhere in Breshit Rabbah, but my guess would be, their position would be, first God created the Torah in God's mind, then God first created in matter, Tohu Vavohu, and then out of Tohu Vavohu, God created uh, the Garden of Eden and, and all of the other things, would be my guess. But yeah, that is a whole nother topic that would be worthy of a 40 minute lesson is how did the notion of creation ex nihilo come about in Jewish and Christian circles? And by the way, the development is related. Hi, Tomer. Sure. I don't know if I can, I'm still muddling through this in my own head, so I don't know if I can express this well. Yeah, me but, too, by the way, and I've been doing it for two decades, so. The, the whole lesson that you gave, which I really enjoyed, you know, it seems like the linchpin is how is the world created and seeing God as a creator. And what what I find interesting is when I think about the names used, I mean, the most common names are Adonai and Elohim. And those aren't really focused on creation. It's more like Lord and ruler. And so I just found it curious that with the exception of some, you know, high holiday liturgy when we're talking about God for, you know, but God forming, you know, we, we, it was like, uh, we are, God is the, is the forge smith or the, the the blacksmith and we are the iron, things like that. But even so, most of the time we're seeing God in a different way as just the creator. And I, I, this is just, I don't know if it, if, if it rises to the level of an inconsistency, but it's more just an observation that it's, it's just peculiar to me that we're not, that we're not using creation 
denominated language for Hashem. You mean that we're not or that the Bible didn't? The Bible doesn't. Oh, I mean, certainly doesn't. the Bible didn't. And it may well be because, and again, I'm going way out of my bailiwick here. So just message to everybody. This could all be entirely wrong, but I'll just, uh, I'll riff for a, a little bit. Um, it may well be that a creator God simply wasn't important for the authors of the Torah because they were working with a concept of, you know, a, a God who's, who's molding earth into something that we now live on and, and, and creator, creator as we understand it now wasn't as important, that may be. And then it may be that once um, Judaism emerges and certainly in the wake of the rabbis, the revelation of law of Torah at Sinai becomes so important and so critical that it becomes the centerpiece of Jewish theology more so than creation. Um, uh, although I would note that, for example, the prayers that surround the Shema, you know, are uh, creation, uh, revelation, and redemption. And those three kind of pillars of Jewish theology do remain, I don't know, pervasive uh, through time. The other thing I would note is that I guess maybe in a lot of philosophical things that I read, creation becomes an important part of the uh, reflection. So not only in the material I looked at, but for example, um, Maimonides, who's trying to figure out Aristotle vis-a-vis -vis Judaism and the issue of creation versus a non-created world is very important. Um, or I'm thinking about, you know, like for Abraham Joshua Heschel or other philosophers of modern Judaism, the concept of creation and being created is incredibly important for his understanding. So maybe, I guess what I'm driving at is maybe it's because Judaism has become so much so a law-based religion uh, over the last 1500 years that the nature of creation became less important, whereas in philosophical cir circles, uh, it becomes a more important uh, issue to ponder. But again, that's all just off the cuff musing from someone who's frankly just an ancient historian but thank you for that observation it's a very astute yeah just uh what struck me as interesting and kind of hard to get my head around was the the proverbs 822 where if god created wisdom but yet god is eternal you know how could there be a time when god wasn't wise or i mean how is that reconciled it, it seems difficult to, to comprehend uh, or reconcile that that thought. Um, that is a brilliant observation that no one has ever asked and I've never thought of. I guess the, I mean, the problem would run much deeper than that, right? Because if you say, well, wisdom didn't exist at some point in the, in, in the eternal past, if wisdom was created at a certain point, and therefore how could God at some point have been unwise? But then you might also say, well, all things have to have had to have been created at some point, like, I don't know, maybe love. And does that mean that God didn't know what love was until God created love? Because that would be a natural analogy if God wasn't wise until wisdom was created. And I honestly have no idea if anybody has posed that question. That's a deep philosophical and theological question that, that may have come up in medieval and modern times, but I, I honestly have no idea what the answer is, but thank you. Yeah. I'm I am thrilled to be stumped by such a provocative question. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Wonderful. That seems like a, a good place to end it at. Uh, so thank you so much, Rabbi Garraway, for, uh, for your presentation. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, our next event will be next Thursday on May 4th uh, for Is There a Future for American Zionism? American Zionism in the Era of the Ethnic State with Rabbi Mike Foyer. And that'll be uh, in person or virtual at 7 p.m. Pacific. So we hope that you can uh, join us for that as well. And do, we hope that do you have to bring boxing gloves to that one. That seems a little more intense <laughs> than what we just talked about. <laughs> right, right. Hope, hopefully it'll be pretty civil and uh, we'll have a good uh, conversation. Um, but thank you again for being here and uh, hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.